Well, thanks so much for joining us today for TCC at Home. Uh, we're thankful that you're here with us, uh, church family, uh, grateful for you. I know we are uh, long into this, this quarantine and not being able to meet, uh, but so thankful uh, for the opportunity every week uh, to, to be gathered together virtually in each of our uh, respective homes to, to hear God's word and to worship together. And uh, today is no different as we continue our series in the book of Ephesians called We Are the Church. Who's the church? church? That's right, we are the church. And as we look at that uh, beautiful truth and reality throughout the pages of Ephesians, uh, in particular over these last two weeks as we've come to uh, the second chapter of the book of Ephesians, we've been looking uh, at the topic of the gospel, race, and the church. Uh, It's uh, no... um, Surprise! as we find ourselves in this moment as a nation uh, and, and honestly as a church trying to make sense of how to faithfully follow Christ and to uh, seek Christ in the midst of, uh, of so much uh, hurt, so much confusion, so much division uh, in our nation and in our country that we, we find ourselves here in Ephesians 2 with one of the richest passages in all of the Bible about the gospel and how the gospel relates to who we are as the church. And so, so uh, last week we looked at verses 1 through 10 and we, we saw how the, the, the gospel uh, unites and reconciles sinners to God. We, we saw the, the vertical beam of the cross, if you will, that, that vertical dimension of the gospel of how God in Christ reconciles sinners to himself through uh, great, by grace through faith in Christ. And, and then we saw even just a glimpse of it last week of how uh, we are now in Christ, a, a new creation created uh, in Christ to uh, to to really walk out uh, good works that God has prepared beforehand. And those good works relate especially to what we see in verses 11 through 22 as we we see the the horizontal dimension and beam of the cross, the horizontal dimension of the gospel that unites not only sinners to God, but divided sinners to one another in the body of Christ. And so we're going to be uh, unpacking verses 11 through 22 today and looking at what it has to say to us as a church as we consider the gospel race and the church. I'm thankful for the time we had on Wednesday, just the beginning of a conversation uh, in our family talks as we sort through how to uh, work out uh, what it looks like in our discipleship as a church to talk through difficult matters, especially as it relates to, to race and, uh, and, and what's going on in our culture and, and how that affects us within the church. And I, I pray that you will continue uh, to be a part of those family talks with us in the coming weeks. Uh, today, we, uh, we come to a passage that uh, is, is prime for this moment. And as I consider the message of Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, uh, this, this message of divided sinners being reconciled together in Christ in the church, it causes me to think uh, this thought. The unrealized reality of racial and ethnic unity and reconciliation in the church may very well be the greatest detriment to the advance of the gospel in our nation. Let me say that again. I believe that the unrealized reality of racial and ethnic unity and reconciliation in the church, what what Christ has secured for us, as we'll see in our passage, the failure to experience that is perhaps the greatest detriment to the advance of the gospel in our nation. We've been painfully reminded uh, of this 
breakdown over the last few years in our nation. We, we see it in the responses to the, uh, to the various injustices that black men and women have endured at the hands of, of police as well as even others uh, in our country. We see it in the nonstop social media political discourse of our day in both directions. Uh, if we can just tackle the elephant uh, in the room often as we talk about this topic, we, we saw it in the flashpoint of the 2016 election, and it just seems like it's teetering ever before us in the election uh, that's just a few months away. I mentioned Michael Emerson last week, who is the author of a book called Divided by Faith, really a seminal work in thinking through uh, the racial uh, dynamics in the, in the church in, in the U.S. In a New York Times article after the 2016 election, his observation was this, that the election was the single most harmful event to the whole movement of reconciliation in the last 30 years. A sobering Reality, a quiet exodus of many black Christians from, um, from multi-ethnic as well as predominantly white churches. <clears throat> it's not true just in regards to our nation. We see the division over and over and over again in our nation. Just watch the news or, or perhaps follow along online, which if I might recommend, we, we probably should do less of, not more of. But, but we also see this reality within our church. The president of the denomination uh, that we are affiliated with here at Treasuring Christ, the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, J.D. Greer put it this way. He said, the election revealed a divide that existed for generations. The election didn't create it. It only illuminated it. He, he presses in to say that white evangelicals should have been the first to listen to the fears and frustrations of their African-American brothers and sisters. Why didn't we? And black believers should lead in giving their white brothers and sisters the benefit of the doubt wherever they can. But instead of showing a world a more excellent way, the church accepted the political and racial battle lines our society gave us. My point in bringing up this, some may say, well, why bring politics into the discussion? Why bring up something that was already so divisive? Well, I really believe that we can't solve a problem unless we are able to really tackle it and, and address it head on. My point isn't to give political commentary. Uh, I'm not a CNN correspondent or a Fox News or, or any other correspondent. I'm not here to tell you how you should have voted in the 2016 election or how you should vote in the 2020 election but to reflect on the fact that uh, this, uh, this reality of what unfolded both in 2016 and what's unfolding now is revealing, exposing our, our great need to consider how the gospel applies and should be worked out in the church. How our gospel identity should be more defining of us than our political identity. How our gospel identity should move us towards people that are different than us and even think different than us and that we work the diversity in all of its ways and forms uh, in our church through the unity that we have in Christ. In fact, my point in reflecting on what's unfolded over these last few years is to point to the fact that if we're going to experience the unity and the reconciliation that Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 is talking about, we have our work cut out for us. The easy work has been done when it comes to racial justice, and racial reconciliation. It's the hard work that's left to us now, not only in our nation, but in our church. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 paints for us a picture, a vision of what God has done in Christ, a, a vision of the church being made up of diverse people united in Christ. 
It's, it's not necessarily a command to pursue something. It's a declaration of what's true of the church. And who's the church? We are. This is our identity. This is what's true of us. And if it's to be true of us, we can't dismiss the hard work that it will take. Nor can we settle for a surface level unity and feel good reconciliation that when the trials come, it exposes their weakness. I think if we want this to be true of us, we're going to have to remember some things. Oh yes, we must do some things. But before we do anything, we must remember some things. We need to remember what God has done. We need to remember who we are in Christ. That's what Ephesians 2 is all about. We said last week, Ephesians 2 is Paul telling the Ephesian church, uh, really reminding them of their testimony. He's saying, this is what God has done among you. You were dead in your sins and your trespasses, he says in verse 1. But God made you alive and has raised you from the dead and seated you with Christ. And, and you are saved by grace through faith in Christ. We, we are going to see that we were alienated from God and from one another, but he has reconciled us to God and to one another and given us unity. We need to remember who God is and what he has done and in turn who we are. As the church. Are you with me? Who's the church? We are. So here in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, it begins this way. It says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, there's our word. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. See, the first thing we must remember is our alienation. Our alienation from God and from one another. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 follows a similar path that we saw in verses 1 through 10. Back in the previous passage, we saw our reality before the grace of God in Christ in verses 1 through 3. And then we saw what God has done for us in Christ by grace through faith in verses 4 through, chapter, uh, 4 through 10. Well, here in a similar way, we're going to see Paul now is, is going to, to address specifically the, the Gentile Christians who uh, perhaps made up a large uh, portion of the Ephesian church. And he's going to remind them, uh, especially how God united them to the, to the Jewish Christians together in the church. He's going to remind them of what's true, not only in their relationship to God, but in their relationship to God's people. And there's a few things that we see here that's important. Notice in verse 11 and verse 12 that not only do we have the language of remember that's repeated, that's pressed home upon us, that's there for a reason that we'll talk about here in a minute, but we also see some time markers. He says in verse 11 there that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh were divided from those who were circumcised, the Jews. And then again in verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ and the commonwealth of Israel. He's, he's pointing uh, to, to, a, to a fact, uh, to a reality that the, the believers there in Ephesus experience. And that one time that he's talking about, he says, remember what was true of you before you heard the gospel. And in chapter 1, verse 13, we saw that Paul said um, that in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation and you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. That at one time was before they had heard that word of truth and, and, and believed upon Christ through the gospel. But since then, there's some things that are, that are changed. But, but here he's reminding them of what was true before they believed the gospel. We, we see in verse 11 that they were alienated, Gentiles from the Jews, ethnically. We, we see this in terms of the, uh, the, the physical dimension of circumcision. But notice, uh, it's not only that circumcision divides them, but it's what, what they were called by the Jews and, and what they considered to be true of the Jews. It says, remember that you at one time, Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. She's reminding of their, of their, their ethnic identity. They were divided, Jew and Gentile. And, and this division uh, that, that we see here uh, is, is a division that, uh, that was um, full of, uh, of, of hostility, full of, of anger, full of uh, just uh, nasty division uh, between, between two people. You had the world divided in, in the eyes of the Jews in two camps, those who were Jews and everybody who wasn't. The Gentiles, the, the barbarians, if you, if you want a sense of, of how they were considered often in the eyes of the Jews. And, and notice that there's this name calling that, that goes on. Those who are called the uncircumcised and those who are called the circumcised. The, 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 the practice of circumcision was a, a covenant marker of God's people in the Old Testament. When you look back at the promise that God made to Abraham, the sign of that promise of the covenant, the covenant relationship of the people of God was for the, uh, the son, uh, uh, firstborn son to be, and really all of the sons, to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant. Um, and, and this sign, though, really wasn't ever just about the physical act. God, God will reveal in the Old Testament how it gets to, to the heart what was most important. wasn't whether or not uh, that a Jew or Gentile had been circumcised, but whether their hearts had been circumcised, whether they had uh, truly trusted in God and his promises and his provision for their salvation. But they're alienated. And that alienation is experienced in how they refer to one another and what they call one another. It's not exactly the same as, as the, the ethnic divisions that we see all over the world or the racial division that we see in America. But, but sometimes as we look at this passage, we get a glimpse of what it must have been like, the, the hatred and the animosity. If you, if you especially go back to, uh, to times where it was most visibly on display for people to see, it was on display for everyone to see. They were, they were alienated ethnically, and, and we see in verse 12, religiously, he says, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, from the, from the Messiah, the promise of the Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers of the covenant promise. Now, when we read this, we're reminded that God chose Israel to be his covenant people. And, and it might be tempting to say, well, did God contribute to this division because he chose Israel and not all these other nations? Well, you have to remember, when God chose Israel, we see in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that God chose Israel so that he could bring his blessing to all nations, to all ethnic peoples and languages and tongues and tribes. God's plan of choosing Israel was so that he might bring blessing to all people. 
who would trust in and believe in his promise, and a promise that was centered on the Messiah, the, the, the promised one who would come to, to fully accomplish the, the salvation and the redemption that God had promised so long ago, and to be alienated not only ethnically but religiously led to this conclusion that we see at the end of verse 12, that, that those who are apart from Christ and from the promise of God, alienated from God and alienated from, from God's people, had no hope and were without God in the world. No hope and without God in the world. That's, that's really the testimony of every person. That, that's also the testimony of, of everyone who was born a Jew but who hadn't truly trusted in God and his promise of salvation. We see throughout the scriptures that what saves one isn't their ethnic identity or their religious practices, but it's just like we saw in, uh, in verse 8 of chapter 2. Salvation has always been by grace through faith, from, from Genesis through Revelation. Salvation is always by grace through faith. It comes to us not a result of anything that we've done, but as a, uh, an act of God's grace and favor towards us who will believe on his promises. And in the Old Testament, it was believing upon the promise of God's provision of a Savior, of a Messiah. And in the New Testament, in our day, it's by looking back at that Messiah who was promised and who came and accomplished our salvation on the cross. But without God, without the gospel, we're alienated from God and we're alienated from one another and the result of that is that we're people without hope and without God in the world. And, and you know, sometimes I think as, uh, as, as we look at the divisions that are going on it, it, in our country right now, there's a sense that it's awakened for many people, this sense of, of what's right and a desire for justice and a desire to see things made right. And, and, and yet there's, there's so often in that desire for justice a disconnect from the God who is just, from the God who will make all things right and who has given us the gospel that makes things right between us and God and between us and one another. So often people are crying for justice, but have not the hope that's found in the gospel, that's found in God, without hope and without God in the world. Remember, he says. What a strange thing to remember. We tell each other to remember all kinds of things. You know, hey, remember... Uh, remember to get your keys before you go out of the house. You know, remember to bring this with you when uh, you meet me later today. All kinds of things that we remember. And in the Christian life, there, there are all kinds of things that we're, we're told to, to remember. But, but the focus is, is on what God has accomplished for us in Christ. And so why does he say here to, to remember who you were before the gospel, how you were alienated from God and how you were alienated from, from God's people. Why focus on this? I think the reason that Paul focuses on this and that we should focus on this is that we remember who we were before experiencing God's grace. We'll be compelled to show that grace to others. So if we remember who we were before experiencing God's grace will be compelled to show that same grace to others. Paul says, remember your alienation. Remember how you were alienated from God and from others. And, and allow that remembrance of your alienation to remind you of the grace of God 
that you experienced in Christ and how that grace reconciled you to God and to one another. And that brings us to the second thing we're to remember, not only our alienation, but flowing from uh, remembering our alienation before uh, the gospel is to remember our reconciliation. He says here in verse 14, but now, just like we saw in verse 4 of chapter 2, there's this interjection. Uh, We were on this road of being uh, without hope and without God, divided, hated by others and hating one another is what Paul would say in Titus 3, our life before experiencing the grace of God. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And then he summarizes it again. And he came and he preached peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Reconciliation. Reconciliation is when enemies are brought together as friends. When those who are divided in hostility are brought together in unity with peace. Reconciliation is what we need in relation to God. We were dead in our sins. We are separated from God. We are enemies with God. And through, through Jesus, we are reconciled to God. And we were divided with one another. The, the Jews and the Gentiles marked by, by their division that we'll see here in a minute that was, was not only just in a, in a spiritual sense, but a, a literal reminder of how they were divided in the temple of the day. They're reconciled, brought together, And this reconciliation we see in in verses 14 through 16 was accomplished through the cross. We go from alienation to reconciliation through the cross. Look, Look again back at verses 14 through 16. It says that he himself, speaking of Jesus, is our peace. How can he be our peace? How can divided people be one? Well, he is our peace and has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. We'll explain that in a minute. That he might create in himself in one new man in place of the two. There it is again. So making peace and he might reconcile us both to God in one body. And here it is through the cross. Reconciliation comes through the cross, thereby killing the hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. Jesus had to go to the cross to pay for the penalty of our sin. The sin that, that, that we break God's commands and we, we elevate our own desires and our own interests over God. The, the law and the commandments of God revealed in the scriptures that, that show us the character of God and that call us to walk in obedience to God. All of us guilty. 
If we've broken one law, we're guilty of breaking them all. We've all broken the first uh, commands that, that elevate ourselves and other interests over God. We're guilty. Not only uh, that we have, uh, not only did this reality of, uh, of spiritual uh, guilt uh, and condemnation through breaking the law divide Jew and Gentile, but also this sense of the ceremonial law. We see uh, there kind of, the, uh, the, the kind of a wordy statement that this dividing wall of hostility was torn down there in the, in the temple, you could, you could see there were, there were different uh, partitions within the temple that within the temple, those, uh, those who were Jewish had certain access and privilege into the inner courts of the temple, access to God, to enjoy his presence, to enjoy worship. But there was a, a dividing wall, a literal wall that separated those who were Gentiles from entering in to experience the worship of God and fellowship with God's people. And a sign marking, none shall trespass. None shall come in who are not Jewish. And what what verses 14 through 16 are showing us is that Jesus, through his life and his death, abolished both the regulations of the ceremonial law. Through his perfect obedience to God, he fulfilled the ceremonial aspects of the law as well as took on the condemnation of the moral law, the condemnation that we deserved for the breaking of God's commands and and fulfilled perfectly the the ceremonial aspects of, of the law that were to define God's people. Both of these things divided Jew and Gentile. Both were were completed, fulfilled, and then put aside at the cross. Reconciliation comes through the cross, and we get a sense of the, the, the fullness of this reconciliation when we consider the contrast in the passage we see starting there in verse 13, and then uh, we see it kind of bracketed in verse 17. Peace came to those who were far off and to those who were near. And then again in verse 17, he came and he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. Just as I said earlier, though God had chosen Israel as his chosen people to be a blessing to all nations, one must have put their trust in God to have had peace with God. Whether they were far off or near, familiar with the promises and the scriptures of God, or far off from those things, Jesus comes and he preaches peace to those who are far off. And it shows that that there was a division that, that there was this dividing wall that we talked about in verse 14. And, and that there needed to be, uh, that they needed to be made one, brought together. And there was hostility. The way they looked at one another and treated one another. And through the cross, that hostility was killed and peace came. Far off, divided, hostile. But through the cross, near, one, peace. This is the work of the cross. This is what Christ accomplished on the cross. And Paul makes clear that he's particularly emphasizing our corporate reconciliation. Just look at verse 18. What what does all of this mean for us? Yes, we are reconciled to God, but he's pressing home the point that those who were most divided in in the greatest degree, far off, 
separated and, and, and hostility. They've been brought near, and it says in verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The gospel unites divided sinners, reconciles divided sinners. Jew and Gentile made one in Christ through the reconciling work of the cross. This is the foundation of uh, of our understanding of, of reconciliation. Both our reconciliation with God and our reconciliation to one another. Why, why care? Why, why press on when it seems difficult or, or, or perhaps in times past it hasn't worked out like we thought? Because reconciliation isn't merely a worthy goal. But reconciliation is a reality that God has declared over us in Christ according to Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. This isn't just the call to pursue this reconciliation. That'll that'll come uh, in a moment as we'll look later in Ephesians. But it's a declaration of what's true of the church. This is what Christ has accomplished for us. It was J.D. Greer who said, Ethnic diversity is not primarily a worthy goal that we pursue, but a reality that God has declared over us. And and here we see that that these divided peoples, Jew and Gentile, are brought together, made one in Christ. And and here's here's something we must press home. It's not that the Gentiles had to become Jews or, or that the Jews had to become Gentiles. But rather, something totally new is taking place. There's a new humanity. That's created. Did you catch what it said? That there's this making of, uh, of something new. That he's made us both one. But then it goes on to say. That he might reconcile us to God in one body through the cross. And, and back in verse 15. That he's created in himself one new man. One new humanity. In place of the two. So making peace. So it's not. Our primary identity, it wasn't their primary identity as they came into the church that I'm a Gentile, that I'm a Jew, but that I'm in Christ as their primary identity. God's church then, in light of this truth, is to be a united people, united and yet diverse, ethnically diverse according to our passage. Jew and Gentile, united in one. The, the ethnic diversity that, that, that God envisions for the church, that he accomplishes in Christ, we see the, 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 really the fullness and the fulfillment of it in Revelation 5, when, when around the throne in heaven are all tribes, tongues, and nations. Ethnic diversity, united together in praise to the glory of God. This is the vision And that vision is accomplished in Christ. Now, what does this mean for the church as we think about this reality? If if this ethnic diversity and unity that we see here in this passage is is not merely a worthy goal, but is a reality that God's declared over us, what does that mean for every church? 
I don't think it means that every church will be uh, ethnically diverse. Uh, That will often play out based on their location. But what I do think it means is that every church ought to be open to praying for the opportunity to be ethnically diverse and opening their arms to all people regardless of their ethnicity or skin color or status. And to the degree that God puts us in diverse locations and diverse cities and communities, we ought to actively pursue reflecting God's heart for the diversity that we find in our community and reflecting God's kingdom heart of diversity that we see revealed here in Ephesians 2 and Revelation 5 and really throughout the totality of the scriptures. For us, as we find ourselves here in Ann Arbor and the greater Ann Arbor area, God's calling us to be a diverse church that not only reflects the diversity of our city, but reflects the heart of God for a diverse people, an ethnically diverse people reconciled together in Christ. This is the reality that waves over the church. And and this reconciliation gives way to, to a unity that we now experience in the church. And this is the third thing that we're to remember is the unity that we have in Christ. Look at verses 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Unity is what's to define us. Where do we see this unity in verses 19 through 22? It's really uh, in in the the numerous words that are used uh, that talk about uh, fellow or, or together or with. We see this language of fellow citizens. And we see this idea of being joined together, uh, being built together. Uh, this emphasis is upon our, our unity. The, the reconciling work of Christ has united us together. And we, we have a unity uh, and we're united with a new identity, according to verse 19, that we are now, through the work of Christ, no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're kingdom citizens And the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God comes in Christ. And now we live not according to the kingdoms of this world, but to the kingdom of God. And we're brothers and sisters in the family of God. Members of the household of God. And it's that 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 really should stun us when we think about the power of the reconciling Uh, the the reconciling power of the gospel, that it it takes not only those who were hostile and enemies and and brings them together in this thing called the church, but it brings us into the closest of relationships, the, the most familial language that can be used, that we're brothers and sisters, members of the household of God. We're united with a new identity. And as we talked about last week, our our new identity, though it doesn't do away with our diverse ethnic backgrounds and and the the diverse ways in which God has made us, what what it does is it gives us a supreme, uh, an overarching identity in Christ that defines everything else and that compels us to, to be able to both love and pursue those who are different than us as well as to celebrate what makes us different within that overarching understanding of being united in Christ. 
We're not only united in Christ, but it goes on to say that we're united with a common source of truth, that we are, are not only uh, fellow citizens and members of the household of God, but verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. We have this common source of truth that's found in, in the word of God, that, that's passed down to us through the prophets and the apostles who, who teach us what God has commanded us, what, what Christ has taught and called us to obey. We see that language in the Great Commission that we're to make disciples of all nations, of all backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds of people, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded you. And part of what it means to obey all that Christ has commanded us and to walk in uh, the unity with this common source of truth is, is to experience the reconciliation that God has provided for us in Christ. So we're united with a common source of truth and we're, we're united with a common Savior, just as we talked about earlier in this passage, that we're built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. What gives shape to the church is Jesus. That's what it means for him to be the cornerstone, that the most defining thing about God's people united together is Jesus, Christ. We're united with a common Savior and united with a common purpose as it continues there at the end of verse 20, uh, 21 and 22, that in Christ, the whole structure, there it is joined together, this word, grows into a holy temple and himself you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The temple was the place where God's presence was among the people. It's, it's there where God uh, came to his people and where his people could come to God. And, and through Christ, the, the promises of the temple are fulfilled that he is the temple of God, not built with hands. And that in him, through faith in him, we now together are being built into a holy temple where the Spirit of God dwells, where, where God is, is present and, and available to the people. We represent God in the world as his priests and ambassadors, and, and God's presence is made known in the world through his people. So we have this common purpose to grow together by the power of the Spirit to grow in obedience to God's word, to grow in holiness, to, to grow in, in love and in grace, to grow in the unity that he secured for us in Christ. You see, I, I said earlier, and I want to bring this together, as we remember the alienation apart from Christ and our reconciliation through the cross of Christ and our unity in the body of Christ. We, we look at all of this, we remember all of this, and, and what it's doing is showing us this is what's true of the church. Who's the church? We are. We are a people who once were alienated and now are reconciled in Christ together, united in the body of Christ. Remember that. This is our positional reality as a church, as Christians. This is who we are. It's good. It's good news. We need to remember it and keep on coming back to it and reminding ourselves of it. But here's how it meets us in our everyday life. If this is the reality of who we are, then the Christian life, then 
the, the, the aspect of racial reconciliation and in unity in the body of Christ, this ethnic diversity that we're talking about, is a matter of our Christian sanctification. What's true of us in Christ, our positional reality must become our everyday experiential reality through walking humbly in obedience to God and pressing in to one another. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, it says this way, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, now Paul's going to get to some action language, I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What is that calling? It's the calling of the gospel that reconciles us to God and one another. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There it is. This is our calling. We pursue this calling in light of what Christ accomplished in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. If we are to walk in unity and enjoy the racial reconciliation, the ethnic uh, diversity that God uh, has accomplished through the cross, it's going to be a work of our sanctification. It's going to have to be worked out continually in the life of the church. It's, it's what we have to return to and remember what's true of us so we can press in to the things that are hard, to the, to the times in which we fail one another, in which we sin against one another, in which we, um, we, did you notice what it said? Walk with humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. This is the kind of thing that it will take to experience the, the work of reconciliation that Christ has accomplished for us. And the gospel gives us these things. It, it gives us the ability to walk in humility, right? It's not, it's not that we saved ourselves. It's that God in his grace saved us so we remember who we were apart from his grace so that we can show grace to one another. We can show patience to one another. We can show gentleness to one another. We can bear with one another, bearing one another's burdens walking alongside, sitting, understanding, listening, all the while eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. This is what we must pursue as a church. So when I think about how this applies to, to our present moment and, and this call to pursue racial reconciliation, this, this call to pursue this ethnic diversity uh, that God uh, lays out for us in Christ in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, what, what's the process of moving uh, in this direction to experiencing gospel community marked by this kind of unity and diversity? In a way, you could, you could say it this way. There's a, a great work and conversation between J.D. Greer and, and Dehati Lewis called Undivided. And in that study, they, they talk about the process uh, of moving towards this type of gospel community. And they, they talk about the process of moving towards gospel community in regards to, to ethnic diversity, racial reconciliation, as being one of moving from, from ignorance to awareness to intentionality. And really, the, the, the way we experience gospel community, the way we enjoy ethnic diversity and racial reconciliation is through, through intentionality. And that intentionality comes as we, we grow in awareness and, and we put off not, not caring or not knowing or being indifferent. And, and this is true regardless of, of your racial background or your ethnic background. This, this is a work for the whole church. Change happens, it's been said, when we develop 
personal relationships with people from other backgrounds, other ethnicities, and we seek to understand one another. We learn to respect one another. We listen to one another. We learn from one another. And that's the lifelong process of moving towards gospel community. That's what we must do at Treasuring Christ. We, we, we look at where we're at right now and, and we, we see God's call and, and, and God's, uh, the work that he accomplished of making us uh, an ethnically diverse people, his church, and we understand our location and, and the opportunity before us to reflect the gospel in our community by being a church that reflects not only our community but reflects God's heart in this way, and it's going to take us growing Moving from ignorance to awareness and pursuing one another with intentionality. And I want to be clear. Our goal isn't just to to have a diverse group of people, a multicultural Sunday service, uh, or a multicultural event every now and then. But the goal is to live multicultural lives. Lives marked by the kind of of heart for, uh, for diversity that we see in God's word. In the church, this is our sanctification. This isn't some other work that we do as a side thing. This is part of the work that God desires to sanctify his church. But I also want to speak to us about the opportunity we have to be on mission. I said at the beginning that our, our failure to pursue the unity and reconciliation that we see here in this passage is is perhaps one of the greatest detriments to the advance of the gospel in our nation. So when we think about living this type of multicultural life in our church, it means that we move towards one another in the body of Christ, those who are different than us, to, to love, to listen, to enjoy. But it also means we move towards others in our community. We, we cross boundaries and barriers and divisions so that, so that we, can, we can know others, we can love others, we can carry the gospel message to, to all people, regardless of their background, their ethnicity, the color of their skin. In the church, the work of, uh, this work of reconciliation is a part of our sanctification. Outside the church, this pursuit of diversity is a part of our mission, Not a mission because it's culturally expedient, a mission because it's biblically called for. This is who we are as a church. This is what we must pursue as a church. And when I think of all the things that need to be said, and there's still so much to work out, and that's that's why we, we want to create a place. When we talk about this being our sanctification and we talk about relationships, we, we don't mean that this is just a relational thing and that there's no implications beyond individual relationships, that there's no calling uh, to work out these things in the world, but that it starts here. Because if we don't have this as a reality, if, if we're just uh, putting up words and saying things and then trying to accomplish that in the world without there being a reality and a demonstration of it within the church, then, then what are we really showing people? Are we showing people our strategy? Or are we showing people the power of the gospel? So we have to pursue it in the church to demonstrate that power to a watching world. And as we do this, what's so necessary for these kind of relationships, and and honestly for us to include it within our sanctification, is to create space for us to discuss it together. And that's exactly what we're doing in our family talks. 
And, and I hope if, if you weren't there last week, or even if you were, that you'll continue to come to be a part of these conversations, not as an end in and of themselves, but as a part of the journey and the process of what God is calling us to be as a church, a diverse family of believers who delight in, declare, and display the gospel in all of life and for the good of Ann Arbor. But what keeps us from this in a stirring and honestly troubling book, Jamar Tisby says in The Color of Compromise, in his conclusion, he asks, when it comes to racism, the American church doesn't have a how-to problem, but a want-to problem. Why is that? And he says, what's needed to overcome that, and what we have to address to overcome that is our fear. He says, fear of other people. So it keeps us back from pursuing what we so clearly see God calling us to. And this is true for Christians of all colors, all ethnic backgrounds. So whether you're black, white, uh, we, we use those terminology in ethnic or in, in racial categories, so whatever your background is uh, in terms of, uh, of, of Asian or, um, <clears throat> or any other, other background, Hispanic, whatever our ethnic diversity, ethnic differences or racial differences, what keeps us back is often fear. Expresses itself in different ways. Fear of causing a stir by having the conversation. Fear of losing friendships. Fear of getting it wrong. Fear that we don't know enough. Fear that our good intentions will have negative, negative consequences. And when I, read, when I read what Jamar Tisby said, it, it hit home personally for me. I think for me, myself, as a, as a white Christian, sometimes what keeps me back is the fear of getting it wrong. I, I want to... I want to really understand and, and, and be able to, to read up and listen and discern the different dynamics and, and, and not go to the extremes. I, I don't want to get caught up in the extremes. I want to find the, uh, maybe that middle way or that, that way that's seeking to be faithful to Scripture. And, um, and somebody else has said it this way, uh, that, that we, we get stuck on this paralysis of analysis, thinking through all the different things, reading all the things, listening, but afraid to speak afraid of what, what it might cause, afraid that we might get it wrong, afraid we might go off too far in this direction or too far off in that direction. And so in fear, we don't speak. In fear, we don't pursue one another. In fear, we're not willing to sacrifice to pursue clearly what we know God is calling us to and clearly what we know we're not seeing in our lives and in our church and in our nation. And we're held back by fear. Jamar Tisby says, Fear leads often to a complicit Christianity. And it's past time to get rid of that and move towards a courageous Christianity. Uh, a courage that believes the gospel is powerful enough to see us through. A courage to believe that Jesus has secured for us the reconciliation we desire. A courage to, to evaluate myself and tell the truth and, and to look at our situation and circumstances and, and try to understand what's dividing us to speak what's hard, both to hear for myself as well as what's hard for others to hear. We can't allow fear to dictate us any longer. We must allow the gospel, the gospel that reconciles sinners to God and divided people to one another, to give us that courage that we need to pursue what God has accomplished for us in Christ.
Who's the church? We are. And if we're to be the church that God intends us to be, we have to remember that we once were alienated from God and one another, but now we've been reconciled in Christ, reconciled to God, reconciled to one another, and united by Christ in one spirit to our Heavenly Father, a gospel that gives us the courage, that gives us the hope, that gives us the, the, the patience and humility and gentleness and the ability to bear with one another in love and the perseverance to experience the unity and reconciliation that Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 is talking about. Remember, remember the gospel. Take heart, church. Don't fear. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word, for your word that meets us right where we're at and the difficult and the hard realities that we face, God. Reality and divisions that we face for far too long. God, would you allow the gospel to sink down deep in our hearts and for it to lead to change. Lead the change in us and every single person lead the change in our church and churches all over this nation. And God, through the church and the power of the gospel, would you bring change in this world? And God, I pray now that if there's any person who's listening to this, maybe wrestling with all the things that are going on in our world and, and finds themselves maybe like what verse 12 talks about, feeling without hope and without Christ in the world. God, would you help them to to know today that the work of Christ on the cross is sufficient for them to, to reconcile them from, from being an enemy of God, to being friends with God, to being part of the family of God, that through the cross, through your death in our place for our sins and your resurrection from the dead, that all people of all backgrounds, regardless of their status or their skin color, can come to you and find life and find faith and find forgiveness, and find, God, the joy of belonging to your family. God, if there's any person who has yet to do that, would today be the day that they call out to you and put their trust in you alone for their salvation? And God, would today be a day where we're renewed in our courage and in our hope to pursue becoming who you've declared us to be in Christ? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.